Hey everyone, Jason Torchinski here. And first, thanks for listening. Second, thanks to our new sponsor, Marble. Marble? We got we got a rock to sponsor our podcast? <laughs> no, David. Marble with a capital M. It's the only all-in-one app for managing your insurance policies and getting rewarded for it. Okay, all right. Well, I have a bunch of cars that I think they're all probably insured, so this could help. Probably not, but Marble's great. It's fast and it's easy to set up as it'll put all of your different insurance policies in one place for you. It's free, which we love around here, being cheapskates, and it will automatically alert you if your rates are going to increase, probably with some kind of really loud sound. Once you set it up, you don't have to do anything as it does it for you, like a robot trained to monitor insurance. And you get marbles, which you can redeem for rewards or use to donate to charity. A marble spewing robot. Whew, that sounds great. How many marbles did you get from it? I got, let's see, two, 900 marbles. Uh, what do you do with that many marbles? I just put them all on a Target gift card. Okay, what'd you do at Target? What'd you get? I got a big uh, crap load of Hot Wheels. I assume for uh, your child? Yeah, yeah, sure, for my child. Mm, okay, well, anyway, um, okay, that sounds good. I like Hot Wheels. Uh, where do I sign up? So you just go to joinmarble.co slash Autopian and you start adding your policies. And not only will you be supporting this podcast, you will also get rewarded just for being a real adult and keeping on top of your insurance. Joinmarble.co slash Autopian, is that right? Yes, David. That's joinmarble.co slash Autopian. Well, come on, Mopar or no car? I used to own That's 269 right. Super Bs. Right uh, on. I put it. There's my Super B tattoo right there. Maybe you oh, can yeah. see that. Oh, right on. <laughs> I physically don't have a Porsche tattoo, but I do have a Super B tattoo. I'm all about variety. Welcome, everyone, to the Autopian Podcast. Um, I'm David Tracy here north of Detroit. Of course, Torch in the basement in North Carolina. Hello. Bo is somewhere I don't recognize. I, I, am at, I am at home. I am sick at home. I don't have COVID. I've got some other type of flu for some reason. So if I sound crappy today, I apologize. Do my best. We, I, right. like, we got such a great guest today. That's what's bringing me energy. That's yeah. that's what I'm excited that's about exciting. because our guest coming up in a few minutes is is one of my favorite people in automotive culture, Magnus Walker. Yes, Magnus Walker from the UK, a clothing designer. Yep, huge in the Porsche community. That's, that's how right. most people know him. Lives in LA. See, has lived I, in LA for a long time. And look, also, since, really since the really, 80s. Well. Well, Magnus is the dude, for those of you who don't know, with the, with the long dreadlocks, like way down past his butt. Uh, but what he's really known for today is his, his incredible Porsches that he builds, these incredible uh, custom Porsches with their own design that are completely unique. But Magnus got his start actually in L.A. Now, those of you from L.A., there's Melrose, which is kind of the, the cool clothing spot back in the 80s and 90s. I don't know if it is today or not, but back then it was the spot. And Magnus had this uh, store called Sirius. And Sirius back in the day in the 90s, I used to shop there. It was the cool place to go. 
and uh, they they uh, uh, he had like really like just funky. Just I, I, how would you describe it, Torch? How would, you you went well, to Sirius back in the day, right? That was a little before my time, but my wife did, and uh-huh. uh, she described it as kind of punky. And she said a lot of the people who were like in the bondage subculture would get stuff there, so it was like edgy stuff. It was kind of edgy, it was a little bit edgy, and I can see yeah. where bondage people would be into it. But like, I wasn't into bondage as much. No, <laughs> I wasn't in a bondage, but uh, uh, but I still went there for clothing. But yeah, now that you think it did have like a lot of like stuff Straps on it occasionally. And, yeah, buckles. I, I mean, the subculture that uh, she happened to know of people who went there, that was kind of how she There's associated. a lot of, you know, vinyl and leatherette. I think there was, uh, yeah, I think leopard vinyl was skin important. fabrics and the such. Yeah, it was, it was like fun stuff, you know, that you'd buy and it's exciting. So, so then so he hot, would like sell the hot, well, and, and then it's like, it was like before Hot Topic became a thing. When right. Hot Topic was actually pretty cool, uh, he was selling the Hot Topic and then things really exploded and that's when they became uncool. So that's probably how he got... Out of you know, <laughs> you know, we didn't you know out of it somewhat. And of course, about, about the whole serious clothing thing is he just he when he was done with it, he decided he was done and he just kind of closed it down and it was all on his terms. He didn't like sell it out and have it become something else. And I I respect no. that actually because you don't see that that often in these kinds of things. Magnus, if anything, is the anti sellout. He is the opposite of what it is, and this is why I really love this guy. He does things from his heart. He just does what his instincts tell him to do. He's not uh, wavered by other people's opinions. And uh, I think he's incredibly inspirational. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talking to Magnus. So if you're wondering why we're talking to a fashion designer, an LA-based fashion designer from the UK, it's because really in, in 2012, there was this uh, documentary, Urban Outlaw, that really propelled him uh, in the automotive community as a truly prolific Porsche collector, not just someone who owns numbers matching Porsches, but someone who does his own thing with Porsches. And um, I remember in that documentary, it was a very compelling space that he, uh, this building he lived in or worked in or um, the, anyway, Urban, Urban Outlaw, that was in 2012. Now it's 10 years later and the Peterson Museum is having a, an exhibit to commemorate 10 years. And so. This is something yeah. very cool about Porsche. I want to mention, by the way, too, because when we became a Porsche dealer, I'll never forget it because I had our, our RWB build and I was like really proud of this thing. I loved it. And uh, I had the uh, uh, some of the Porsche executives out. They were, you know, kind of, I was touring around gas and uh, we're coming up to this, you know, build and I just know they're going to hate it, right? I mean, it's this incredibly obnoxious, you know, build from this dude from Japan that comes out and literally cuts up Porsches. And, you know, so I thought here they are, they're going to, they're going to come in with, you know, high browed and looking down upon it. And the exact opposite was true. Porsche came in uh, and uh, just loved the car and welcomed galvanizing, welcomed what we were doing and building custom cars. And I think that's something that's kind of overlooked, that, that Porsche is this very inclusive community. They're not this really stuffy uh, thing that I had the impression that they might be like some brands might be a little like like Ferrari. You know, you hear well, no, they'll never be a pink Ferrari. And that right. uh, who's the DJ that got in trouble for for his uh, what was that Ferrari? Oh that yeah, the, I remember that. Was it the yeah. Ferrari? Was it with the cat on the side yeah. of it? The mm. Ferrari. Yeah. That's what it was. And like Ferrari yeah. literally said, "We're not going to sell this guy cars anymore." I mean, 
come on, take the stick out of your ass, Ferrari. That's <laughs> yeah, what I love about Porsche is like, go, go for it, guys. Do whatever the hell you want. It's your car. Bring yeah. your own heart and soul and your love and passion into your car. Do whatever the hell you want. And we'll appreciate it for what you put into it. That's what makes Porsche cooler than any other brand or cooler than Ferrari, in my opinion. So uh, anyway, uh, that's that's and, and to me, that's also what helped propel uh, uh, what uh, what he was doing here is that it was not only, um, you know, what Magnus did. It wasn't only just, you know, kind of out there, but also it was like accepted by Porsche and, and the whole Porsche community. So anyway, yeah. well, you know, anxious to, to hear he got there. All right, let's bring him on. Magnus yeah. Walker. Quite a motley crew we got going here. Yeah. Yeah, we try. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Magnus, welcome to the Autopian Podcast. Thanks for uh, joining us from your garage. Hey, um, thanks for having me. We're delighted. Yeah, yeah we're, uh, we're excited to talk to you about uh, your uh, Peterson exhibit, Outlaw Gathering, um, and uh, just anything you want to talk about uh, car-wise. We will talk about cars and basically 24-7, so it's, uh, you know, you're in good company on that front. Well, you know, you uh, uh, you obviously are, you're very well known in the automotive community for Porsches. Now, I grew up in L.A. and uh, I grew up uh, going to uh, uh, Melrose Avenue ever since I was a kid back uh, back in the 80s. And, uh, you know, I used to love going to serious clothing. And you you got, you were just the you were the cool thing on Melrose back in the day. And I actually met you backstage at a concert. I don't remember you know, which one it was. We had, we had mutual friends back in the day. And oddly, we started talking about, and I'm a Ford guy, and we weren't talking about, uh, uh, we weren't talking about uh, Fords or po Porsches. We were talking about Hemis, strangely. Uh, and we, we were talking about Roadrunners and Super Bs. And, and then I remember you really getting into Porsches. So I was kind of wondering, did you ever kind of go off into the Hemi area at all? Or did you go straight into Porsches? Well, come on, Mopar or no car? I used to own two sixty nine right. Super Bs. Right uh, on. I put it. There's my Super B tattoo right there. Maybe you can oh, yeah. see that. Oh yeah! Right on. <laughs> I physically don't have a Porsche tattoo, but I do have a Super B tattoo. I'm all about variety. You know, growing up as a kid, I watched a lot of American TV in the seventies. So you know, it was everything from Dukes of Hazard to Rockford Files to Chips. So it was a whole bunch of Americana, Captain America, Evil Knievel, Stars and Stripes. So it only seemed natural to own a couple of, uh, you know, muscle cars. So at one point, I've always owned Porsches, but at one point I had Porsches and muscle cars. It was all about variety. At one point, I actually had a 65 GT350 uh, Fastback Mustang R replica with a 351 Cleveland. Wow. A Richmond five-speed, a Detroit locker. I had a 67 E-Type Jag. I had 269 Super Bs. I had a Lotus Europa twin cam 73. Cool. I had a 79 308 GTB Ferrari. That was all probably 20 years ago. So I've gone through phases of owning non-Porsches. There was a phase when I got rid of everything that was non-Porsche. You know, every car I just described sort of excelled at one or two things, but the Porsche excelled at everything. But, you know, the Super Bs were a lot of fun because – you know, you could have four people in one of those and a trunk full of groceries and stoplight yeah. to stoplight was always a lot of fun in a 69 Super B. I had two of them. One was an F8 metallic green uh, white interior, 383 four-speed. The other one was a triple back black 440. Never had the Hemi. But this was back in the 90s, pre-Barrett Jackson, when, you know, one of those cars yeah. was three grand and 
The other was 8,500 bucks bought at the Pomona Swap Meet. So, wow. you know, as you know, early 90s, you could pick stuff up cheap. Then Barrett Jackson happened and people were just, you know, uh, uncovering barn fine one of one, plum crazy, uh, you know, hemi cooters and, you know, everything went like that. So I've seen this wave happen with Mopars, British cars, and obviously Porsches. But uh, ultimately, I just buy what I like when I want to experience what it is. I've never bought a car as an investment other than what I call smiles per mile. So ironically, I've kind of gone full circle and parked outside. I've got a, a Series 3 V12 E-Type Jag. Oh, yeah, I nice. also have a 75 308 GT4 Dino Ferrari. So, you know, I'm all about variety. So Porsche is my drug of choice. It's my religion, but it's not the only car I have keys to. What did well, that's you absolutely fantastic. Well, I was I, just thinking about Porsches and where you grew up in the U.K., how do you feel about uh, Hillman Imps, which I always felt was like the closest the UK mark, you know, motor industry ever got to anything really Porsche-like, just being rear-engined and kind of lean and small. Did you like Hillman Imps at all, or are they just treated with Hillman Imps are real cool. Ironically, there's a hot rod one that rips around LA and goes to the uh, LA Cars and Coffee in Griffith Park. You know, yeah. Hillman Imp, it was not necessarily the most common car growing up in England in the 70s. You know, there were a lot of Ford Capris and Ford Granadas and, you know, yeah. Triumph Stags and TR7s and E-Type Jags and all the rest of it. But yeah. specifically to answer it is a very, very cool car. Uh, what I should say is when I lived in England, though, I left England at 19, left school at 15, never had a driver's license in England, never owned a car in England. Wow. So, you know, I didn't experience having a car that I worked on with my father. This is a pretty common scenario, right? You grow up, whatever your dad's into, you get into. But uh, my dad was working class salesman. wasn't like we had a, you know, a garage full of cool cars. Even though I may have been around them, we didn't physically own them. So, um, right. for sure, a cool car. But, you know, yeah. the British automotive industry has made a lot of cool cars. That's just, you know, one of a hundred. That's very true. And so when you, when you, of, first, you, when you first got, stag, I just want to just ask one quick thing because you're in LA, there used to be one triumph stag. I used to see on a regular basis in silver Lake across the street from, you know, Astros in silver Lake on Hyperion. There used to be a triumph stag that was there all the time. Is there any chance you know about it or have seen it? I don't know about that triumph stag. Right. No, just hoping. All right. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. I always kind of like the stag, but, uh, I yeah. like the Jag XJS even more than I like the Stag. Oh, yeah. Pretty car. David, yeah. sorry, I interrupted you. Seems, you seems to me like you're a bit of an Anglophile. Mm. Uh, I had a Reliant Scimitar, <laughs> so I kind of, you know, I had that, I had that strain going through me for a while, yeah. yeah he's happened? not enough, he's not enough of an Anglophile to actually care enough to get it running. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> it was running for a long time. I drove my car then this I is a common theme, really. You know, British cars not running parked in driveways looking cool. Yeah, That's mine right. looked cool in the driveway. <laughs> yeah, they all do. <laughs> yeah. I've Maybe. been stranded many, many times, famously in my E-Type Jag on Labor Day weekend at three in the afternoon on a Friday on the side of the 10 freeway, Ugh. waiting for AAA for about two hours oh, God. when it was 95 degrees with no shade, no water. So I've mm. been there. But yeah, yeah, I'm still a sucker for E-type jokes. So they're beautiful, of course. Have you ever? My, I, I have to tell you, my daily driver. I have a '69 Rolls Royce Shadow Coupe. Oh, so this is the pre-Corniche from '66 mm -hmm. to '71. There were Shadow Coupes. '71 onwards, they called them Corniches. And Rolls sent the Shadow body out to Mullen Park Ward, 
who basically did the conversion. So my, I would say my daily right now is my 69 Rolls-Royce Shadow Coupe. Is so it kind back of to the ratty? British thing. Is it, kind, is it kind of in ratty condition? Because I always thought a Silver Shadow in not great condition is an extremely cool thing to roll around in. Uh, mine's actually fairly decent condition. We have two. Hannah's got a 75, the olive green long wheelbase one. Uh, mine is a two-door black coupe, actually in pretty decent condition. Both of those cars broke down when we test drove them, both of them. Well, actually, mine broke down the day I went to pick it up. Hannah's ran out of gas on the test drive. So, uh, But, yeah, we still bought them. We didn't pay any attention to other people's advice. The key to vintage Rolls Royces, because you can pick them up cheap, is uh, deferred maintenance. So once you get on top of what seems to be the three main issues in no particular order – cooling, electrical, and brakes. Once you get on top of those and you keep them running, i.e. you don't let them sit in your driveway, you got to keep these things daily. Once you get them daily, we probably only spent about five grand on each one, truth be told, to get them wow. reliable. These things are pretty simple and pretty reliable. Got a whole lot of style. You know, this is going down the road straight at probably 70 miles an hour in a 60s or 70s shadow. That's about all you want to do. Wow. Uh, you need a big distance in between, big gap, because you don't stop great. Uh, but that's it. I love them. Torque flight GM transmissions in those things, I think, also, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're pretty doggy. You know, there's no power to them. You know, it's a slush box, three-speed automatic. But the car determines the speed you're going, and, you know, you're just sort of along for the ride. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, you know, Max continuing with the, the British theme that we're on right here. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the early days when you got to the States from the UK, what were the first cars you, you had, the very first ones? Well, as I said earlier, I never owned a car in England. The first car I ever owned, uh, I bought in LA in 1988 for $200. It was a 1977 Toyota Corolla 2TC oh, that wow. I drove around without a driver's license for a little bit. And then when oh. I was 19, I took my driver's license in Santa Monica, passed my test and drove that car probably for another year until I sold it for $200. So that represented ultimate first taste freedom, i.e. not waiting on people, not riding a bike, not taking the bus. These are all things that, you know, didn't yep. work too well in LA as a kid. Yeah, that was my car, except mine was white. That's a but good that just represented ultimate freedom. I kind of really liked that car. And, uh, about a year or so ago, I thought oh, it'd be cool to try and find a 77 Toyota Corolla, which believe it or not, is not that easy to find. Right, uh, yeah. Second car I ever owned, I bought in 1990, was a uh, 1987 Saab 900 SPG Turbo, oh, nice. which you know was pretty cool. I still like the Saab SPG. And then the third car I ever owned was my first Porsche that I bought in 1992. So that was 30 years ago, which was a red slant nose 74 911 conversion. Bought that up, Pomona swap me for 7,500 bucks. And that was real dream come true. The two first cars were you know, sort of semi-budget freedom. Uh, the $7,500 slant nose, that represented big dream come true moment at the age of 25. So those were the three cars from my early sort of five years of being in LA. Back and in when the did you, 80s, early 90s. And when did you start kind of putting your own design aesthetic on there? When did you start kind of customizing your own car and making it your own? Well, that came later, you know, bought the first Porsche in 92, 10 years later, started doing track days with a Porsche owner club from 2002 to 2008, probably started 
Well, first car, first 911 I bought was already customized. That was a slant nose conversion. So I didn't customize it, but it was a 74 911. I bought that in 92, being converted to slant nose wide body turbo look, but still had a 2.7 motor in it. So the first thing I did was that was all show, no go. So I went down to yeah. John Williamson Autos in Venice in 92, within a couple of months of buying that car, and had him put in a three-liter motor and then went wow. to wider wheels. So I wouldn't say I modified that, but the first Porsche I ever owned was already modified, and I modified it a little bit more. I suppose <laughs> the second one I bought, which was the car that became 277, I bought that also at the Pomona Swap Meet in 1999. Pomona Swap Meet is the world's greatest place to go for anything you want to buy that's automotive related, <laughs> whether it's a Corvette, a Beetle, yeah. or a bunch of Chevy parts, or whatever it is. Yeah. But you've got to remember, this is all 25, 30 years ago. So it's pre-internet, pre-eBay. You just turn up there with a pocket full of cash and just go, you know, go picking whether it was parts or cars. So I remember Pomona Swap Meet Swap. still to this day is the greatest place to go. Yeah. Uh, if you're an uh, Angelino. So anyway, second Porsche. It truly is. What's that? I said it truly is. The Pomona swap meeting. You yeah. get it. It's still so today. Here's <laughs> the long answer to your question. The second Porsche I bought in 1999, the 1971-911T, the car that became 277, when I bought that, it had a 27 CIS motor in it. Within two, three months of owning that car, I had saw some real RS Carrera flares, had them welded onto the car, got a ducktail, and turned that 71T into a 73 Carrera look. Yeah, so cool. that, I, I would say, would be the first Porsche I modified back in 1999. So what is that, 23 years ago? Then that car evolved to become the streetable track car. That's the car I joined the Porsche Owner Club in 2002, did a lot of track days at local tracks, uh, California Speedway, Willow Springs, uh, Laguna Seca, Thunder Hill, all the Rovals. That was my streetable track car for the next six years from 2002 to 2008. That car gradually got more modified, but the sum of the parts was it was always basic and by today's standards, somewhat antiquated. Still running torsion bars, 22, 28, uh, everything adjustable, but Weltmeister sway bars, not like it's on fancy whammy, you know, coilovers and stuff like that. Gone through a few motors. So that really was where my modification was more from a performance uh, orientation point of view of just making that particular car handle better, stop faster, go quicker through the corners type of thing, bolting roll bar. And then really, I suppose, what was the road up to leading to Urban Outlaw of me building what I would consider to be Sport purpose, streetable track cars inspired by the 911R, the ST, the TR, and obviously the RS and RSR. That all happened probably 2008, 9, 10, 11, that period. Uh, and then the Urban Outlaw film came out 10 years ago. So that was the gradual road of 30 years of por uh, Porsche ownership leading up to Urban Outlaw coming out 10 years ago. Yeah, I'll never forget the first time I saw 277 because it really hit me. Because I'd never seen a Porsche quite done in that way and in that look. And it really it is. It's, it's still gorgeous to this day. And by the way, I love the fact that you started uh, customizing cars on performance. I think a lot of people wouldn't know that. Thinking, you know, that you're from a clothing design company, that you wouldn't be as into the performance side. But obviously you are. But when I... Also, when I look at your, uh, your Porsches and I look at, you know, back at, at Sirius Clothing, 
And, you know, I, I see some, uh, some commonalities and some, you know, some, uh, some things that are consistent there. So I'm kind of curious, you mentioned like Evil Knievel, who is also a, you know, a, a, a personal hero of mine. And I did a Evil Knievel truck and things like that. But I was curious, like, where did your design aesthetic come from? And, and how do you take that design from clothing and now put it into cars? Is it, is it just you, you just kind of do what feels right or is there yeah, something I mean, you're drawing organic. I think my, you know, it goes back to growing up as a kid, watching a lot of American TV and movies and uh, listening to a lot of American music, you know, in the 80s, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue. You know, I grew up listening to heavy metal. So that's kind of where I guess the punk rock outlaw attitude came from. When it comes to the way I've sort of modified my cars, Obviously, there's a performance angle of it, small, you know, never big horsepower, just more sort of momentum, but great handling. A lot of cars are on Hoosiers, you know, better grip, better stopping power, shorter braking distance, stiffen everything up, but still make it usable where it's not a full-blown track car that you've got to trailer it everywhere and it's too racy for the street. So that's the performance end of it. The cosmetic end of it is sort of this combination of everything I described, this love affair with America, red, white, and blue, little bit of hot rodding thrown in, hence louvers on deck lids and things like that. But ultimately, just adding my own personality. All these elements come in, they go into a blender, you mix it up, and what comes out are the 10 cars I've got on display at the Peterson. But obviously, there's others left behind. But ultimately, for me, I bought things that I was personally interested in and modifying them to reflect my own taste, meaning I didn't say, okay, see that poster on the wall? I'm going to emulate that 73 RSR, the way it left the factory in whatever livery, right? You know, I'm sick of golf livery. I'm sick of martini livery. I'm sick of the hippie livery. There's nothing unique about these liveries. They were unique 40, 50 years ago, but I'm not looking to emulate. I may pull some inspiration from that, you know, I'm a big uh, fan of Brumos Racing, the red, white, and blue color scheme. But I'd sort of tweak that red, white, and blue scheme and put it in a slightly different, instead of the uh, stripe that went from the rear fender to the headlight, it became color blocked. So it's just a, a way of mixing up what I'm inspired by. Uh, my area of inspiration really is late 60s, early 70s, the golden age of motorsport. You know, it's everything from Vic Elford in the mid-60s to... You know, James Hunt, Nicky Lauder dueling for the F1 World Championship in the mid-70s and everything in between. You know, it's a bit of Americano. It's a, uh, a bit of British, you know, rule Britannia vibe going on. But ultimately, it's just a reflection of my own individual personality and not trying to emulate something that the factory did. You know, and that theme continues with a lot of what I've done over the past 10 years. These collaborations we can talk about with Hot Wheels and Momo, Mobile One and Nike and slightly out of the box, but completely familiar to anyone that's, you know, a gearhead on, you know, obviously what I'm building mostly is Porsches and they look pretty familiar, but it's just a little tweaks and details that separate me from all the other great builders out there. That and the fact that this is a hobby for me, it's not a business. I don't build customer cars. I don't buy and sell cars. You know, occasionally I sell one to buy something else, but um, it's still a hobby, a hobby that I would call an out of control hobby. But it's not a business. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's why there's so much attraction to what you do is because it is purely out of love. Uh, it's not out of economics. It's not out of showing anybody anything. It's doing what you personally love to do yourself. And uh, people really uh, uh, tune into that. And I think that's why what you do has you know, caught on uh, so heavily. And now we're seeing uh, this amazing uh, display at the Peters Museum. So 
Congratulations. I'm well, sorry, David, you started. I appreciate that. I mean, the story continues to evolve in the sense of what I've done with the Porsches is not just specifically 9-11. And the whole point of the UO10, celebrating 10 years of the Urban Outlaw film, was to showcase my diversity and variety of Porsche ownership. So it's front engine, mid engine, rear engine, air and water cooled. So, you know, there's a 924 there, there's a 914 there. And even though the 924 is a Carrera GT, that's kind of a holy grail car. There's a story behind that. The 914 <laughs> is a lowly 1.7 liter base model. And there's yeah. a story behind that. Every car has a story that's on display. So, you know, to me, it's the goal of the, the Peterson Museum, really the exhibition, the retrospective, was me moving a lot of what you see here in the garage over to the museum. A lot of people want to come and visit me, which is not always possible. So instead of just putting like 10 cars on display, I wanted to bring a bunch of memorabilia and some of the collaborations and really put together an exhibition that just shows what has happened to my life over the past 10 years and how people have been involved in it, how these opportunities have come up. I have one wall where there's over 20 unsolicited um, art pieces that are pe people have sent in purely based on 277. You know, it's artwork, it's posters, and that's the relatability of that car, 277. You know, it's stuff that people had sent me over 10 years that are, are now hanging in the museum. It's kind of like I brought everyone along with me and told the story. You know, every item has a description, and on every description there's a QR code that you scan, and I'll ramble on about everything you're looking at, whether it's a 914 or the turbo or whatever it may be. So, you know, for me, it's just a way of really sort of sharing this journey that I've had over the past 10 years that happened purely organically. And, you know, I've been privileged to do some pretty cool things, really all because of Tamir's film. If his film hadn't come out 10 years ago, I don't think I'd be sat here talking to you guys today. Okay, so, so that, fil that film, um, uh, what, what did that film mean to you? Well, it's interesting. You know, at the time, I'd never filmed anything. And ironically, I'm in the film location business, meaning I own property that I rent out to production companies for commercial filming, everything from low budget to big budget, TV, movie, whatever. To answer your question, when I got approached by Tamir at the end of 2011, he was a, a commercial film director, Porsche owner. He'd been following along this thread I had on the Pelican Parts Porsche blog called uh, Out of Control Hobby. And I gained a little bit of um, interest overseas, few European magazines. He reached out, said, hey, I like your story, but I think there's a bit more to it than you're telling. How do you feel about making a short doc uh, documentary film that was originally going to be three to five minutes long? And my original thought was literally as simple as this. How bad can this be? I'm going to you know, make a film, drive some Porsches, and we'll see what happens. We had, we had no idea the impact of what the film would do within the first few months of it coming out, getting picked up by Top Gear and going sort of viral. I mean, Tamir would ask me a question, what does Porsche mean to you? Obviously, I ramble on. He had a great team together who would find the little golden nuggets, you know, the little gems of wisdom that would organically happen. And then he'd stitch it together and create this film, which became a 32-minute award-winning documentary that ended up premiering at the London Raindance Film Festival. So we'd gone from shooting this little independent self-financed all on Tamir's end. He flew down on his frequent flyer miles from Toronto, hired this talented crew in LA in February 2012. And then he went back to Canada. I didn't hear from him for three, four months. And a trailer came out in June. That went viral. The film got picked up, got accepted into this Raindance Film Festival, which I jokingly say is the rainy version of Sundance, 
We got on a plane, <laughs> flew to England, premiered the film. Uh, a bunch of people came over to watch it. And then it just kind of went viral. And you have to remember 10 years ago, the short independent documentary filmmaking style wasn't as accessible as it is today. You know, it was kind of ahead of the curve of this cinematic story that was told. I mean, the film centers around my love affair with Porsche, but it's not a Porsche-centric film. It's telling my story about leaving school, coming to America, working on a summer camp, you know, just in living life one day at a time and going with your gut feeling. So we didn't know what to expect, but one thing we've discovered 10 years later is the film still holds up. It's still one of the best things I've ever shot, and I've shot a lot of things in the past 10 years since then, but none of them's actually achieved, I think, the organic effect of what that film got across. And it's so, relatable across a lot of platforms in the sense of, I still have people who come up to me, you know, generally girlfriends and wives who say, you know what, I'm not into cars, but my husband, boyfriend showed me your film and I was hooked and I really get the passion. It's a passion project really is what the film is about. And it's related to a lot of people outside of the Porsche world. So, you know, that's a long answer to, you know, Urban Outlaw. I remember watching that for the first time and it was it, it was it was fascinating obviously like you said it wasn't just about the cars it, it was it was about your whole story your whole style your whole way of presenting um i didn't realize you were discovered on pelican parts forum that i did not realize yeah i'd been on that pelican parts forum you know that was before i had a cell phone you know so i used to load stuff up on my pc i'd been on pelican i don't know since 2008 9 but probably by 2010 2011 that thread had gained a lot of momentum through the builds that I was doing. It was just a different environment than it was, you know, there was no Instagram, no Facebook, or if there was, I wasn't on it, you know, so I was purely focused on just sort of sharing the journey of what I was building, right? You know, if you like to follow along type of thing. So it was all organic. It really was. And still to this day, you know, I'm like this one-man army in the sense of I don't have an agent. There's no manager. There's no team behind me. It's me and this. You guys are the perfect example. I get a text from Matt at like 11.30. Do you want to do a podcast? Sure. When? Today, one? Yeah. Here we are. It was that simple, <laughs> And thank right? you. You <laughs> know, it wasn't like, let me get back to you in three weeks' time, and then it never happens, and I have to get approval, and blah, blah, blah. So I'm easy to reach. I'm easy to deal with, I think. Uh, I got time. I'm passionate about sharing my journey and you know, I appreciate the opportunity for you guys to allow me to tell my story. This like is it. why people love you, Magnus, because you're, you're, you're real, man, and you're not uh, any of that, that bullshit. And, you know, I briefly met you 30 years ago, and I remember back then you were completely real and down to earth and just a, a real genuine human being, kind of let your heart out. And uh, I think that's why people uh, are attracted to, to you and what you do. Uh, because you've got this amazing design aesthetic, but not only that, but you're you're approachable and humble, and um, you're a real inspiration. You know, when I uh, when I look at what you've done, and you've got this whole thing about kind of just doing things from your heart and what you believe in, and, and following your instincts on things. And uh, to me, that's very inspirational, and not looking at what other people are doing, but finding it within yourself, and and being brave enough to let people see who you are inside. And I think that's incredibly inspirational for, for everybody who's listening. Well, I appreciate those kind words and the support. I mean, I don't feel like I've changed in the 10 years. People always say to me, have you changed since the film came out? Well, my hair's grayer. I've got less of it, but I don't really think I've changed. I think maybe more people are aware of what it is I do or what I've done or what I'm about just through the exposure that that film got, which led to 
you know, some other cool things. Like I did a TED talk in 2014, which is the most viewed thing I've ever done. And similar type of thing to your podcast today, I get invited to do a TED talk. I'd never even heard of one. I didn't know what TED talks were about. I certainly <laughs> didn't watch them. You know, it wasn't my type of thing. And I would say 99% of the people that have seen my TED talk, which is almost 10 million views, had no idea who I was, weren't car people, but they're related to this thread of just going with your gut feeling. That's the title of the TED talk and doing what you yeah. love. Not so much what is predetermined, what you feel you should be doing because that's what your dad did and your dad's did, did right? I hear a lot yep. of people saw the TED talk that went down this path to be whatever it was they thought they were supposed to be, you know, doctor, lawyer, investment guy, whatever. But, you know, it's a classic story, right? They go, they get the education, they get into this career that they're not really fulfilled or motivated or happy by. They might be financially stable, but yet something's scratching away inside because they're not doing what they love to do. And I think for me, the ultimate freedom was coming to America young at 19, you know, not having anyone tell me, cut your hair, get a real job, be home by midnight, live by my rules. <laughs> that was the ultimate freedom. Make your own mistakes do what you love. But because, you know, it wasn't handed to me, that struggle, I had to fight, you know, doing the stuff on the boardwalk in Venice, the clothing, which led, you know, it's been a gradual journey of being in America, in LA for 35 years. This didn't happen overnight. You know, buying my first Porsche uh, 30 years ago for 7,500 bucks, that represented, like I said, the dream come true. But it also gave me a sense of achievement and confidence to go, fuck, that dream actually came true. So let me keep dreaming and chasing these dreams, right? Because if that one came true, other ones can come true, right? I didn't necessarily set myself any limits to say, well, I don't really have any education in designing cars, so I can probably never do it right. You know, I yeah. modified them, I suppose. But, you know, it's just fortunate enough to find something several times over that I was passionate about doing, which I had no education in, but I was driven to succeed in. That was the clothing design. That led to buying property when people thought we were nuts buying old buildings in downtown LA. And now it's like, wow, you guys were so smart. Well, not really. We just <laughs> did what felt right at the time. But the common thread is we never, I never asked other people's opinions on, hey, do you think this is a good idea? I thought it was a good idea for myself. That was all that mattered. I didn't need the validation from someone else to tell me, yeah, go do that. It'd be great. So I suppose it was self-confidence in everything that I've done. And ultimately not worrying about pleasing other people, hence why this for me is a hobby and not a job, why I don't build customer cars, because then I'm married to that customer's taste and expectations and deadline and everything else, right? You know, I'm all about freedom to sort of do what you want to do when you want to do it. And that's how my life has been. It doesn't work for everyone. Some people need structure. You know, maybe I'm a little more fluid that I can bounce from one thing to the other, but um, that's, that's me rambling on right now. Amen, okay. brother. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I would like to bring up a controversial topic because, and I'm going to be outnumbered here three to one. Oh, boy. Oh, um, I'd like to talk about the difference. Okay. Which city has the stronger car culture, LA or Detroit? Mm. Well, great question, actually. When I first came to America in 1986, I worked on a summer camp north of Detroit. Oh. I took a trailways bus from New York to Detroit and worked on a summer camp as camp counselor on Lake Michigan. And I would go into Detroit, Greek town, Trappers Alley, went over to Windsor. This was in the 80s. So you oh, can yeah. imagine how Detroit was then. And I took that trailways bus to LA and I didn't go back to Detroit until 2015 when I actually shipped 277 there and screened Urban Outlaw. Uh, I guess it was the Fillmore 
big old theater next to the, the Tiger Stadium right there. And I made a video in Detroit called That's Detroit cool. Outlaw. And somehow Iggy Pop provided an original tune to it. And I teamed up with no Camilo Pardo. And wow. I did a thing oh, with him. Awesome. And I, made Detroit, I, I made a video called Motor City Outlaw with a legitimate Iggy Pop song attached to it. So this is my experience with Detroit. I've since gone back to the Detroit Auto Show. Well, I went when it was in January, Sub-Zero, freezing cold, not yeah. last week or <laughs> You went to the authentic one, yeah. Yeah, I went to the real one, you know. <laughs> so I've always liked Detroit, the Motor City, in a way it's similar to Sheffield in the sense of former industrial city that had fallen on hard times in the 70s and 80s and is now making a comeback. So I'm a fan of Detroit. I hate to say I've never gone to the Woodward Avenue cruise. And I really want to go to that. We it always clashes with that Monterey Car Week. Exactly. I'm not it. really giving you an, a great answer to your question, but Detroit has great car culture. But LA has 24-7, 365 accessibility to world-class driving roads, ocean desert mountain that you can do in a day. No rust. And everything okay. you want to do that's automotive-related or everything I want to do, can get done with a 30-mile radius of where I'm sat. Every major car company has a design team that's located or has an office in L.A. They may have one in Detroit, but to me, L.A. is the car culture capital. You know, it's where the most cars are. It's like every manufacturer probably sells more cars in L.A. than any other major city in the world. Uh, the car culture here, whether you, whatever you're into, whether it's flat-top Fords or Sport Import Tune or Fast and Furious or Ken Block doing Gymkhana or Canyon Roads to go rip around or accessibility to world-class roads and racetracks. It has to be LA, hands down. Amen, right. brother. Preach it. Preach it. That's why David's moving to LA, by the way. True. Yes, yes I, I am. I, I will, Just not I, soon I, enough. Let me I sum it up this way. All my buddies in Europe start putting the cars away like next month for winter for a couple Same. of months. Same. And that probably yeah. happens in Detroit. Well, oh, yeah. you know, half these cars don't have wipers. They don't have heat. doesn't matter in L.A. <laughs> yep. So I'm going to make a couple of defenses uh, for Detroit just because we have a lot of Detroit. No one was asking, by the way. <laughs> and, and, and they're, uh, um, yeah, every time I go to L.A., I have to say the cars that I see there, the variety is incredible. Everything. No rust. It's like NSUs in the street. It's just anything. I will say what I like about Detroit is there are no rules like like you can mod you could modify your car you can do anything here no there are no inspections no emission none of that it is just you can do whatever you want um and well, i also David, usually well, pre-1974 same here that's True. rusted halfway so the bed's coming <laughs> yeah. off usually. you can do that yeah and i also have to say i actually think that rust has actually and this is a very weird take but i actually think Rust has strengthened car culture in Michigan. Here's why. All like, people together never sleeps. Well, well, <laughs> that, well, that's true. But like, let's just say there's like someone has a 1990 Dodge Caravan in good shape. In California, it's not a big deal. Like every 1990 Dodge Caravan is fine. But a 1990 Dodge Caravan without rust is a show worthy car. People will show up to our meet our meetups in a 19, you know, 92 Plymouth Plymouth Voyager van. And everybody will stare at, oh, my gosh, this thing is in such great shape. It's incredible. Like, that's a car that, like, you wouldn't necessarily. It democratizes things. It does, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And you can do a trail of rust off the hood of a car, and there's nothing like it. <laughs> so, so, Magnus, is there, uh, is there something that you, you're obviously extremely well known for Porsches? And to me, I really loved hearing about 
uh, your different types of automotive uh, passions. Uh, do you have anything kind of new that's kind of itching at you right now or something that's uh, kind of creating a new kind of passion within yourself? You mean a new car or a new venture? A new car? Well, both. I'm, I'm curious about both. Well, last year, Hannah and I bought a 100-year-old house near the Hollywood Bowl. Now, I've lived in oh. downtown L.A. for 30 years. I've been in L.A. since 1986, so I'm an Angelina. 19 years in Sheffield, England. 36 years in L.A., so I'm 55, right? So I've obviously been to Hollywood a lot, but I'd never lived there. So we bought a 100-year-old diamond-in-the-rough fixer-upper with like 25 years worth of MacGyver deferred maintenance. Yeah. It's near the Hollywood <laughs> Reservoir. We're now MacGyver. walking to the Hollywood Bowl. I like projects. You know, I've restored a lot of cars. You know, humans like to collect, right? Guitars, cars, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy projects, so... What we're really sort of digging our teeth into is restoring a 100-year-old Spanish house in the Hollywood Hills, which in a way makes restoring the car seem really easy. So, you know, that's, that's a whole new passion project. You know, we're going to flea markets and antique stores and we're fighting with contractors and, you know, we're, we're doing fun, crazy stuff and we're making it up as we go along. So I'm energized about that. That's a new project. Uh, car so is that home going to have like your own design in it or you're not restoring it back to the original or you're restoring it to how how you believe it should have been in the period or new like i'm well, kind of curious it's a combination what... of we're keeping a lot of the original it's all spanish so it's arches this yeah. and there's a rotunda staircase goes up to it uh so we're restoring that with upgrading a little bit but we're not modernizing we're adding personality right. you know cool. we're, we're adding some flavor but we're furnishing it with 60s and 70s sort of mod pop Italian sofas. And so instead of making it all like an antique store with a hundred year old furniture and a hundred year old house, yeah. you know, it's a hundred year old house with mod pop furniture from the sixties and seventies, which is, you know, 50 years old to begin with, but it's all about scale and proportion. I've lived in a loft forever. So big open rooms, this Spanish house in the Hills is the opposite. Everything's curved. Yeah. Most of my artwork doesn't fit. Most of the furniture that was in the loft is too big. So it's getting recreative around an architectural environment. You know what I mean? Uh, cars are a big part of what I do, but I like style. I like design, which is why I love collaborating with Hot Wheels and various other people do it. Yeah. It's like an extension of the clothing, right? So I talk about the thread of my fiber that is woven together is just creative, stylish things that I enjoy. Restoring cars, restoring buildings, designing clothing. These are all creative visual things that I'm excited about. It's what gets me out of bed early and keeps me up late. You know, why I'm awake at two in the morning trying to figure out how we're going to do whatever it is we're doing in this house, you know, remodifying all these decks that are all falling down and dilapidated. And we're going to tweak them, make them somewhat period correct looking, but add our, add our own little twist to it. So to me, it's like I've restored buildings before. The building I'm sat in is a 120-year-old warehouse in the arts district in downtown LA. So I like projects. They really get me engaged. The cars are a similar type of thing on a different scale. But it's all about just staying motivated, staying inspired, and inspiration's all around. It's like when I went to Detroit, I was super inspired by all those buildings, you know, the Grand Central Terminal yeah. and all these places, that, you know, all these forgotten gems that have just decayed. And, you know, some of it's coming back, which is great. So I like travel, but um, right now we're grounded, focused on, you know, restoring and adding our own personality to a hundred year old building. So the cars come and go in a way of sometimes I'm super engaged in having a 
having to have a project that's a car. You know, I've just gone through this Ferrari, the 75. I'm in love with the Rolls Royce. You know, I'm going through that, the issues that that has, you know. Uh, so it's variety. It's cars and it's houses is, what, is what's sort of driving me, fueling me right now. Well, I can't wait to uh, to see this house if you show it when it's finished. That sounds really fascinating because I, I figured you couldn't just put it back the way that it was. And at the same time, you can't make it modern either. So I'm really curious how creatively you come up with it. And you were talking about cars a little bit. Is the Rolls and the Ferrari, is that the, the current thing? Or do you have something that's the, the next thing that you're looking at? That's the current thing. I mean, the Rolls is still new yeah. car flavor, even though I've had it six months. Right the novelty is not worn off. I mean, some cars come and go. Like during COVID, on a whim, I ended up buying a 75 AMC Hornet just because of this great oh, original yeah. orange patina. And it was yeah. kind of cool, but I never drove it. I ended up selling it back to the guy I'd sold it to for the same price I paid for it, just to create some space. So, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting is – during the discussions with the Peterson about having my own exhibition there, initially I was going to have it for four to six weeks. I said, I can't live without my cars for more than four to six weeks. And they go, well, we, we needed it a little bit longer. And it ended up being a three and a half month exhibition that started 10 days ago and it runs through January 31st. So <laughs> now I'm dealing with, I'm over the sort of disconnection of not having my favorite toys here. Now I'm looking at it as it's going to enable me to drive the other cars that were stuck on the back row that didn't yep. get driven. Yep. You know, so now I see it as an opportunity to drive some of the other cars that may have been neglected. And to talk about the exhibition for one second, one of yep. the things that I'm most proud of is all 10 cars that you see on display at the museum were driven to the museum. This generally yes. does not happen. You know, yeah, no. I, you know, four out of the 10 cars hadn't been driven in about 18 months. So, that, you know, there were a lot of fuel-related issues, not just, you know, uh, gas that had hardened and fuel lines that were cracked and clogged and injectors and float bowls and needles that were gummed up and all other fuel-related issues. It's a bit of a challenge to get all 10 cars to make that drive from downtown to Peterson, plus to coordinate and make a film without walkie-talkies and without a film permit. And, you know, it came out, the stars aligned, with no issues, all 10 cars made it, headlights worked. No one got pulled over. Everyone made it through the traffic lights. And it was one take. It wasn't like we did it twice. We did it once. So wow. that's one of the things I'm most proud of is the majority of cars that you see on display at museums get brought in in a trailer and get pushed into the position yeah. that they sit in. All 10 of those were driven there. I personally backed them all into the spot where you see them, and that was it. It was like, okay, you know, they're going to be driven there. I'm all about get out and drive. It would just seem natural. Why would I trailer a car to the museum? Like, just drive it there. It's easier, cheaper, and easier. <laughs> it's so true. God. I bet you replaced uh, a lot of that awful fuel line that has the woven fabric on the outside, so you can't tell when the inside's cracked. I feel like I'm Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, there were a few of those issues. I mean, it is amazing what happens when a car gets parked. Forget about flat batteries and flat-spotted tires. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like you go through the system, bleed the tank, you know, uh, but a lot of them had cracked fuel lines. That, you know, some of them were high pressure. Finally, yeah. get the fuel pump working. You turn it on, it fires up. There's smoke everywhere. You go great, and then you smell gas, and it's just pumping gas everywhere. And then, you know, you got to start chasing things around. So, yeah, you, you got to keep them running, and that's yeah. the problem that's I had. Of, I guess first world problem: a few too many cars that weren't getting driven. 
Well, I see you still got some Porsches behind you there. So at least you, you still have some toys to play with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a, do you have a favorite driving car that you really, that's the one, if you had one car to take out into the mountains or wherever to yeah, drive along not the all the time. It's 277 sure. without a shadow of a doubt. The favorite pair okay. of shoes. You know, it's yeah. not the fastest. It's not the most modern. But to me, it's all about variety. You know, the newest car I own is right there. It's a 2014 Turbo S. I bought this car about 18 months ago, second owner. I bought it with 162,000 miles on it. It's now got 172,000 miles on it. When I first got it, I didn't really connect with it. I didn't get out of it and look over my shoulder. And it did everything great, but it was so disconnected, right? Triple digit speed, thought like you were just cruising at 60. And uh, yeah. I wasn't in love with it. It was an appliance and it was pretty generic. As crazy as this sounds, a 991 Turbo S in LA is, is not a rare car. And I hadn't modified it. But what changed was I drove, Hannah and I drove from LA to Mohab, Utah, 800 miles. And we took the scenic route. We went to the Easter Jeep Safari to do some off-roading. Oh, it yeah. took about 12 hours. And when we got there, we weren't beat up. Our backs weren't aching. Our ears weren't ringing. And that yeah. was where it finally clicked. This is the Swiss Army knife of all Porsches. If you want to go fast, it's as fast as anything on a public road. If you're stuck in traffic doing 10 miles an hour, you know, for an hour, it's comfortable. If you put 800 miles on it in a day, you're not getting out beat up. I wouldn't want to do that in 277. I wouldn't want to do that in a GT3. But that's where the Turbo S just excels. So the answer to your question is, depending on where I'm going, is the experience of how I want to get there. Like if I want to go back 50 years, I get in, you know, behind the wheel of a car from 1972 or, you know, whatever year it may be. If I want to drive to Mohab, maybe it's a Turbo S. So I'm all about variety. And I'm fortunate enough that I put myself in a position where I do have the option of stepping back in time where, or going modern convenience back to being all about variety. David just wrote an article about this very concept, about uh, inadvertently choosing a comfortable car, even though aesthetically you may not want to, but it does happen. There's there's yeah. value there. I get it. Yeah, like I, I, I just drive old cars. I, I That's what I connect with personally. But I, I ended up with this relatively modern Lexus. I just ended up with it. And I just found if I had to do an errand, the key I would grab would be the most comfortable one and without even thinking of it. It wouldn't be like a conscious choice. It'd be like, ah, let me just grab that. And it's just the quietest, the most comfortable. And there's, I mean, the fact is like, you can love old cars, but there is still something about, you know, comfort that still, it does still matter. That's a, when you're talking about the Rolls Royce, that's ex exactly what came to mind is, you know, there's, there's driving the, the sports cars, but when you want to like cruise down the boulevard, I mean, taking an old Rolls, I don't know what's cooler than that. And, I mean, and it's, it's it seems very comfortable. Than that. I mean, we have two of them, his and hers, who so are pretty fortunate, but neither one was an expensive car. Neither yeah. one is actually, believe it or not, an expensive car to maintain. Unlike yeah. a new Rolls Royce where someone may look at Ridiculous. you like you're a bit of a douchebag, right? In of a course. vintage classic, and I'm talking <laughs> 1969 and 1975, they're yeah. not actually that common on the road. You can go anywhere. If you happen to go to a fancy restaurant and, you know, I don't let Valley Parkers park any Porsche I own, but I'll <laughs> let them park the Rolls because I know right they'll on. park it out front. They won't actually move it very far or they'll let you park it. You just give them the key. So to me, the roles determines the speed you go at. Everyone, it's a real conversation get stopper at every stoplight. People want to talk to you, engage about the car, because yeah. it's not a common car. 
you know, ironically, you feel like a million bucks, but you can pick them up in the high teens, low 20s. So yeah. it's actually a lot of bang for the buck. There's a lot of style. At this point, there's a, a vast amount of comfort and noise isolation. You can squeal tires at 30 miles an hour going around corners. So you can have fun at a slower speed. And people don't expect to hear Rolls Royce squealing tires going around the corner at 30. So that's kind of fun. And uh, you can get three, four people in it. Willow, the dog, loves it. It's easy to get in and out of. My mum was just over from England for two weeks for the Urban Outlaw uh, retrospective premiere. She drove in a lot of cars, but the majority of the cars were Rolls Royces. And uh, for me, it's one of those things as a kid, I, I always sort of wanted a roly-poly. And obviously, <laughs> you start looking at them and you realize these things are affordable they're obtainable let's put it that way you can get yeah. a decent 70s shadow in the high teens you know you can't buy a lot of cool car for that amount of money you can't get much that's fun in the porsche world for similar money so in a way it's a lot of bang for the buck yeah i, I like that. so that's true something about a slightly they're in in even here in north carolina there's a guy out in the country who has a really ratty silver shadow that's like half primer and it's like a hunk of crap but the fact that it's a Rolls Royce in that state just makes it even cooler somehow. I yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's well, especially the, the kind of older ones. But I love what Jay Leno says about you know, Rolls Royce is like when you see a Rolls Royce, like most people, you look at the car. But when you see a Rolls Royce, you look at the driver. Yeah. And I always thought that was an interesting perspective. And it's so true, though. Like you immediately focus on who's driving that car. But that but it, it, you're so right that classic rolls affordable you get all the look fun to drive and um and uh, not not have that cost long i mean it. So we take I, it I out to it. home depot you know when we buy plants <laughs> for the house and loaded plants up at home depot so in a weird way especially yeah. hannah's which is a long wheelbase four door you can get a lot of shit in the back of that you I'm know sure the trunk's gotta yeah. be huge loading up it's a bunch of lumber yeah. and moss in a rolls royce is just uh, that's a fantastic thing but you know the rolls, I'm not driving the rolls to Mohab, Utah. You know, I never worried about gas until recently, but the rolls, you know, I fill it up on a Monday and it's about 150 bucks to fill it up because it's got a big tank and gas is expensive. And yeah. we drive it every day and, you know, you put in miles on it by Friday, you back down a reserve and you go, wow, this thing just guzzles gas. <laughs> you know, when gas was 50 cents, it didn't matter. The rolls, you know, it probably doesn't do eight miles to the gallon. I mean, Porsches are like that when you, you know, pedal to the metal, but the rolls yeah. are not really pedal to the metal all the time. Man. Anyway, well, that's fine. you got to pay the price. Well, you, you know, with a lot of people, you say, oh, gee, so what's what's next? But I think, Magnus, what's coolest about you is, unless you've got something planned, is uh, it's about living in the moment and, and kind of taking life as it comes and, and doing what, what feels right. And I, I personally think that's uh, incredibly... Uh, inspiring as well so i, you know I, mean? I guess it, it, it's yeah. freedom because i've never been yeah. that person that you know i remember at school you go see the career advisor where do you see yourself in 5 10 15 20 years i mean i don't really know where i'm seeing myself next week right so to me <laughs> it, it. it gives you the freedom to pivot and go whichever way you want to go not getting locked in um to situations long term so maneuverability is where i'm at and but ultimately that's freedom I, you know I've said it for years. Freedom's the ability to do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. So, you know, that, that, that to me is, is where I'm happy. That's where I'm comfortable. I don't need my life planned out. You know, I've had highs. I've had very low lows and everything in between. And, uh, you know, the older I get, 
health becomes an issue, right? Because you want to stay doing stuff. You want to stay mobile. You want to be able to travel and do cool things. So, you know, health becomes a – things shift. You know, things that were a priority yeah. 10 years ago, like being this goal-oriented collector of having to have all these Porsches, you know, to, to fit some sort of niche or whatever it was. You know, once you've gone through it, you go, okay, well, I've done that. What's next? And we're talking about what's next, what's inspiring, and um, we'll, we'll see what else comes up, right? I love that. Can we yeah, talk well, about what, living in the moments, what it's about. Can, can I ask about your opinion on a, on a specific controversial detail on some Porsches that I see right behind you? Sure. The fat black rubber bumper guards. Yeah. I personally kind of love them, and I know yeah. they get derided a lot, and I just want to hear, what do you think of them? You know, it all depends on the car. I mean, the car always determines whether it gets modified or not in the sense of, you know, whether they are originally, do they serve a purpose? Do they look good? I mean, I take a lot of things off. Sometimes things get left on it. it all, talking about these, this car here behind me is a pretty rare car. It's the last MFI 76 Carrera built. So that one's going to remain stock. Uh, I love the I yellow lights. I that, that would remain stock. Uh, the car, like one of the cars that's at the UO10 is the 67S. It's a holy grail car, but it's one of the more highly modified cars because it didn't have the original motor. And then to me, it's like, okay, like I was saying earlier, you can do whatever you want with your own car. So the car always determines for me whether it gets modified or not. If it's an original numbers matching car, that's kind of pure. I don't mess with that too much just because there's plenty of others that are not pure and original that have had modifications done already. So those are the ones well, I, that I prefer to modify. Yeah. Amen to that as well. Uh, and, and you know what? Cause I completely believe in that. And I was kind of, curious because i i love the fact that you respect cars if they are original numbers matching uh, and at the same time to me when they're not like we restored a, a a 55 speedster and that was like kind of a holy grail car but it didn't have a numbers matching engine so i felt the freedom like okay we can play with this car and create it you know the, the way that we want to do it but to me if something has that history that purity uh, then it, then you respect that as well. So yeah, I, I love exactly what you're saying. It's it's letting the car speak to you and tell you what the car it should always be. does. I've got a bunch of buddies that own speedsters. They go all go on these rallies, and I'm always ribbing. I go, you know, they made four thousand speedsters back in the day. No one cared about a speedster. It's not a rare car. You know, you guys are all you know driving these high end speedsters, but it's not like Porsche made twenty five speedsters here. So yeah. I'm always ribbing about you know. 4,000 is quite a lot of speedsters out there. But, uh, yeah, to me, the car always determines, you know, does it get modified or not? I'm known for modifying cars, but half the cars that are here, you know, the ones that didn't make it to the museum are not modified. You know, they're stock. And sometimes, you know, horses for courses, I got nothing against. You know, the Porsche world's like a big pie. There's plenty of slicers. You know, some of those purists, that, you know, they, they like to put the cars on golf courses and, have a judge with white gloves and Q-tips tell them what's right and wrong with it. And that's great. And there's a slice of the cake for people that want to modify and collect. And, you know, maybe my pet peeve are all these guys and gals now getting all excited about ordering special paint to sample color combos. And then they don't drive the car because they don't want to devalue it. They don't want to put miles on the GT3 RS that's paint to sample, but they'll drive it to cars and coffee and tell you how special and rare it is. And I always go, you know, the real rare one is the guy that just bought a white one, right? with no options. That's actually the rare GT3 RS. <laughs> not true. the one that you've got in whatever trendy color where, you know, a lot of other people have got the same trendy color, but no one drives. Back to like the 172,000 mile one owner Turbo S, you know what I mean? These cars are built to be driven. 
obviously, like I say, you can do whatever you want with them, but I'm not quite as inspired listening to people tell me about their low mileage. I don't drive it because I don't want to devalue it. Uh, GT3 RS, but someone who's going to show me a car with a couple hundred thousand miles on it, I want to know, hey, these are great stories, right? One of the coolest things I ever did, I did this show with Haggerty called The Big Thing and The Next Big Thing. And one of the coolest cars I ever drove was, uh, and I met the guy before he passed away, was this New York school teacher called Irv Gordon, who held the Guinness Book of World Records for three million miles that he put on his 1967 Volvo P1800. And I met the guy probably eight years ago. And then I actually got to drive the car, Volvo P1800, documented by Volvo, three million miles. And to me, it was like, wow, one owner, rebuilt the engine four or five times. Volvo started tracking high mileage through dealer maintenance in the 70s by 78 when the car was 10 years old he put a million miles on it it's like wow this guy's so connected to that car and those are the stories that are emotional to me because three million miles i mean unbelievable in one car in a volvo so that's what excites me hearing those stories and getting behind the wheel of those particular cars you know back to being about variety and these memorable moments that you can't put a price on right you know nothing's exciting if you're getting you know someone showing you a car with 50 miles on it. It's like, what's the point? Amen. Yeah. Wow. Well, Magnus, you're incredibly uh, inspirational to, to me personally. I've got to say, uh, where, where do we, uh, uh, where do we sign up for the sermons? Uh, that, that's, that's all I got to say. Well, but, I think, uh, I think you can, you can, uh, you can get inspired uh, at uh, the outlaw uh, exhibition until the 31st of January, right? Of next year. Yeah, if you go to the Peterson, it's in the vault, in the Legends room. It's open every day. You can read about it. You can listen, scan a QR code on your phone, listen to me ramble on telling stories about particular cars and things that are there. And uh, I, To me, I'm super proud of what's being achieved. I'm super thankful for the Peterson to give me the opportunity to display my cars in what is a world-class facility. Mm-hmm. You know, and people that have gone there are are leaving inspired, which is good. You know, I enjoy sharing what it is I've done. And we'll see where this road leads to. You know, I mean, there's a lot of other museums in the world that might want an outlaw exhibition. So for me, it's just another step on my journey of doing cool things with cool people. So uh, if you get a chance, have Porsche talked to you about that at all? Because I could see those cars in Stuttgart. Well, you know, that's where they came from. I mean, I have this weird relationship with Porsche. You know, I'm not a brand ambassador. I'm not, I'm not yeah. associated with them in any way. You know, ironically, I wrote a letter to Porsche when I was 10 years old. I talk about that in the film. And they did write me a letter back when I was 10. And then uh, after Urban Outlaw came out, uh, I've got a letter from Porsche dated February tw- uh, 2013, a few months after the film came out, where they talk about seeing the film, talk about the original letter I wrote, and they invite me to go visit them. So that letter that I received from Porsche is now on the wall in the museum above the Urban Outlaw poster. And over the past 10 years, you know, I've done some things with Porsche, sometimes environments, sometimes they don't. But it's just this weird, weird relationship. But I think they realize, you know, I've got that one thing I say it all the time. You can't manufacture passion, put it in a bottle and sell it. You kind of either have it or you don't. You know, and this Porsche thing for me, I'm not growing out of it. I've been into it for 45 years. You know, it's not some trend that all of a sudden, I'm doing stuff with Porsche today, but next week I might be, you know, selling you yogurt or something. You know, that's not me. You know, 
cars come and go, but this is my drug of choice, my religion, for whatever reason, right? It's not going away 45 years later. It's, it's still there. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought it made sense to put the letter on the wall in the museum. Just because it's back to this, you know, do what you love, live the dream. You know, if people connect to it, they connect to it. It's like I didn't seek approval from Porsche. They didn't actually help me get to that point. They weren't involved in the film, but they related to the passion for the brand, which is something I've had for 45 years. Next year, Porsche is celebrating its 75th anniversary. going to be a big Porsche year. Yeah. But I've been into them for 45 of those 75 years. I mean, so, you know, over half the Porsche lifetime, I've been a fan and I've been a Porsche owner for 30 years. So this is not a fad. I didn't drink the Kool-Aid a few years ago and, you know, get into <laughs> Porsches because they were cool. You know, I was kind of into them because I liked the way they looked when I was 10 years old. Does that letter that when cool you were 10? Not, Amen. Does the letter when you were 10 still exist? <sighs> Maybe somewhere. I don't have it. You know, if Porsche really dug deep, it's probably in their archives from 1977. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that got lost along the way. You know, it's, it's pre-digital. So it wasn't like I scanned it and kept a copy of it. No. I kind of no. wish I had it, but I don't. So, no. <laughs> right, yeah, there's so many things we have. One of the things I did is the actual <laughs> car that started my love affair with Porsche, I got to drive. I made wow. a little film with Porsche cool. in Sheffield. And I drove the exact white Martini Turbo that was on the stand wow. at the 1977 London Old Court Motor Show. Wow. I drove it in 2018, so whatever that was, 40 years after the fact. I got to drive the actual car. Epic. So, you know, just full That's circle. amazing. That, how many people get a chance to do that, too? That, that's unbelievable. Fantastic. Yeah, it was kind of a, a dream thing for me that, yet again, sort of happened organically. It just evolved. So, you know... That's the great thing about the car yeah. world, really. It brings people yeah. together. You know, I can break it down and say Porsche guys are more genuine, whatever it is, but it's not really that. It's true gearheads yeah. share the same passion, right? It starts with the love affair, the thrill, the chase, the build, the drive. But ultimately, there's a point where it becomes about the people, right? The car community together. And that was how I've been able to get behind the wheel of certain cars or drive across Australia or where some of these awesome drives that I've done would never have happened if it wasn't for Tamir Moscovici's film, that sort of put me on the map and then opened the door to like-minded, fellow, passionate car culture people that, sure, you know, let's go do some stuff together. Yeah, we so, call those people autopians now, now that we're doing this uh, this goofy website, because it's all right. about the passion and, and love for all automotive culture and all the people that are into it, not just one particular segment, uh, because we all enjoy different kinds of, of automobiles and respect that love that each one of us have. And, you know, there's a lot of cross love happening there as well. But uh, I just appreciate your passion and inspiration and uh uh, quite frankly, what you bring to uh, uh, to our culture is just quite, uh, it's quite amazing, Magnus, and it uh, wouldn't be the same without you. So well, thank I you, sir, it, for, you know, for all you day, do. I'll make it brief. We're all enthusiasts, right? And I think that's the yep. common bond that brings us together right there. Yeah, absolutely. That's yep. so yeah. true. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Magnus. Yeah. And for those of you listening, uh, please check out the Peterson Museum's uh, display. And Magnus, is there anywhere else people can go to check out, uh, you know, what you do and, and, and well, your thing? Well, if you're on a cell phone and you're on Facebook or Instagram, you can find me over there and the usual YouTube this, YouTube that. But uh, if you want to touch the car, see him in the metal, get down to the Peterson Museum here in L.A. Uh, between now and October 31st. 
for everyone else, I appreciate all the support. Thanks for tuning in and uh, allowing me to share my story. This in my opinion, awesome. the coolest guy in the automotive uh, collecting culture or automotive culture period, Magnus Walker. Thank you, sir. It's been an honor to have you on our podcast. And uh, Thanks, guys. hopefully we'll see you soon at the next show in here in L.A. Being fun. Pedal to the metal. Cheers. Have fun. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks again.